In John Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life, the Pilgrim's Progress, a man named Graceless, later named Christian, living in the city of destruction, comes upon a book. And as he reads it, he becomes greatly burdened by his sins and the impending destruction upon him and his city because of them. And at the word of evangelist, he flees from the city of destruction toward the wicked gate where he may begin his journey to the celestial city and so be saved from the wrath to come. It is a long and perilous journey with many dangers and yet many helps along the way. But toward the end of his journey, however, he and his traveling companion at the time, hopeful, leave the true way and they take bypath meadow. It looks easier and it seems to be going in the same direction as the way. However, they soon come to realize that they need to turn back. And as they travel back toward the way, they spend a night on the grounds of a castle. Doubting castle. Owned by giant despair. The giant finds them throws them into his dark and nasty dungeon and holds them captive, beating them, starving them, threatening that he would eventually kill them. This is all too familiar territory for many of us. We struggle with faith and obedience and assurance of God's love for us. We doubt and despair when we sin or when trials come upon us. But we're not alone. And we see a particularly distressing example of despair in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations was likely penned by the prophet Jeremiah during the Babylonian exile and serves as a lament over the sorrows and woes that have come upon Israel because of her rejection of God as God, as her God, as her all in all, her greatest portion. Israel had come to live upon her own beauty rather than God's, and so she was sent into exile, captive to the Babylonian forces, and the picture is bleak. And the prophet Jeremiah, uh, as a, a representative of the people, seems to be trapped in a doubting castle with no hope of escape for a good portion really the majority of the book. The book begins with these words in Lamentations 1. 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. And the lament just continues from there. And perhaps you could say it reaches a fever pitch in chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. He writes, He has made my teeth grind on gravel. 
and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Nearly the entirety of the book reads like this. Especially chapters 1, 2, and 4. And both in chapters 2 and 4, the the situation is so bad that mothers are said to have eaten their own children. Bitterness, darkness, destruction, and calamity. It is an incredibly sad scene. And yet, like Christian and hopeful found, the, the way out lies close at hand. You see, Christian, he realized after four days in the dungeon that there was, there was actually no need for him to spend any time there. He had the key to escape all along, but he had forgotten that he had it in his possession. The key is called promise. He had all the promises of God and so had no need to spend even an hour as a prisoner of despair. And this is the same reality that Jeremiah must call to mind in order to keep from being overcome by despair himself. And so that brings us to our text this morning. We are looking at Lamentations 3, 22-26. And these verses will serve as a key to fighting despair. Something to which we are all tempted at times. And these verses stand out from the despair of the rest of the book and they help us to see that even in the middle of all our deepest miseries and sadness, there is hope. And it's this hope that I want to consider with you this morning. And so I've, I've entitled this sermon, What is Your Portion? And our key words for our worshipers in training are mercy, portion, and Wait. And I want to read these verses together and then we'll jump in. Lamentations 3, 22-26. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So these these verses supply the content of what Jeremiah says that he must call to mind in verse 21. He says, but in the midst of his sorrow, he says, I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. And then he tells us in these following verses. And there are three observations that I want to make from them. And then a few points of application. First, in verses 22 and 23, we will see that God is an infinite source of love and mercy and He offers Himself to us each and every day. Second, in verse 24, we will see that God is an altogether sufficient portion for us in whom our souls can find hope and satisfaction. And third, in verses 25 and 26, we will see that God shows Himself good and does good to those who wait for Him. So first, in verse 22, we see that God's steadfast love never ceases. 
Jeremiah here is talking about God's covenant love. It's, it's not just God's benevolence to mankind in general, but the love God has for and communicates to His covenant people whom He has called to Himself and saved through the death of His Son. Jeremiah says that this love, it never ceases. It is never used up. It's never spent. It's never gone. It never reaches an end. There is a limitless supply. His mercies, His compassion never disappear or become weak. He goes on and says that God's mercies come to us each and every day. There's a wonderful illustration of this in Scripture and it's found in the wanderings of the the Israelites after God delivers them from Egyptian bondage. And He promises to lead them to dwell securely in the promised land. And and so in Exodus 16, we read that every morning they they would wake up and find that when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake like thing, fine as frost on the ground, which they called manna. And they were to go out each day and gather enough manna for that day and that day alone. If they gathered more than a day's worth of bread, the extra bread would spoil overnight. So this is a great picture of God's spiritual care for us. One thing that we learn from this story is that today's provisions... Today's blessings, today's graces are sufficient for today, not for tomorrow. Often we worry and stress about things that are coming days, weeks, months, or perhaps even years down the road. But this is a mistake. The Lord wants us to see this morning that His love, mercy, and grace come to us each and every day. And they are given in sufficient quantity and quality for that day alone. The grace you are given today is enough for today, but it isn't sufficient for you to live upon tomorrow. You need all of the grace given today for today. Tomorrow's mercies will come, and you will need all of them for tomorrow's challenges. And so we must learn to live upon God and His mercies as they come to us each day. And then we can say here with Jeremiah, great is your faithfulness. Every day, day by day, God cares for us. And so we see then in these verses that that God's steadfast love never ceases and He He loves us every day and cares for us every day. Well, secondly, let's consider God as a sufficient portion upon which our souls may rest. Jeremiah says in verse 24 that the Lord is His portion. And this expression is likely a reference uh, to Numbers 18.20. There the Lord tells Aaron that the tribe of Levi, unlike the rest of the tribes of Israel, when they entered the promised land, would not have a share of the inheritance in the land. Rather, for them, the Lord would be their portion. It was the Lord Himself for the Levites, not the land which the tribe was to own and to live upon. 
And so there are two questions that we need to consider with this statement. First, what does it mean for someone to have God as his portion? And second, can we say that for ourselves? Is God our portion? So first, what does the writer mean when he says that God is his portion? Well, the word portion, you know, refers to your share. We often use the word at mealtime, uh, or in legal terms, it describes the part or share of an inheritance that one might receive. And so Jeremiah says that he calls to mind that even in the midst of his suffering, even in the midst of these calamities, even in the midst of uh, being utterly downcast, that he has come face to face because of that with the reality that nothing in this world except God Himself is an adequate portion upon which He may live. Thomas Brooks, in his book, An Ark for All God's Noahs, uh, which is a very rich consideration of this verse, he expounds 15 characteristics of God as our portion. Relax, I'm not going to do all 15. But I do want to to mention... uh, Really, just three of them. It's sort of a kind of a summary of a couple of different things. But there are three things that I'm borrowing from Brooks about this verse when we think about God as our portion. Um, first, we see that God is a present portion. He is one that we currently possess. Second, He is an inexhaustible and a safe portion that cannot be lost. And third, He is the greatest portion upon which we may live. First, God is a present portion. Jeremiah says that he currently possesses God as his portion. It's not something that he simply looks forward to in the future, but it's something that he currently, present tense, possesses. The Lord is my portion. Now we admit there's a fullness of enjoyment yet to come, but it is his share in God that presently gives him help and hope. There's a story of a woman who was martyred during the reign of uh, Queen Mary who reigned over England and Ireland from July 1553 until her death in 1558. She was known as uh, Bloody Mary because she aggressively sought to reverse the English Reformation which began under her father Henry VIII. She sought, sought to restore Roman Catholicism in England and Ireland through ex- and her executions were, were quite brutal. And upon the trial of one woman's faith, uh, this woman was asked, um, or she was threatened really with the loss of her husband. She was threatened with the loss of her child and all of her outward comforts. And this was her reply. Christ is my husband. He is better to me than ten sons. Christ is mine and you cannot strip me of Him. There is a current possession that she had, that Jeremiah has, that enabled her to endure her suffering with dignity and strength. And Jeremiah sees this for himself. See, he had been a faithful prophet, but he was suffering in exile like the rest of rebellious Israel. He had been brought low and cast down like everyone else. In the beginning of chapter 3, he says that he has been brought into utter darkness. His flesh and his skin waste away. He cannot escape. He says he's become the laughingstock of all the peoples and he has ground his teeth on gravel. He cowers in ashes. 
he says, and we read this earlier, he has forgotten what happiness is. But something changes. What was it? It was this. He calls to mind and reminds himself, the Lord is my portion. And therefore, he has hope. You see, when we are suffering, often the answer is to stop listening to ourselves and to start preaching to ourselves. This is what Christian and Hopeful had to do. Retrieving the key of promise. This is what Jeremiah had to do. He had to stop moping and start preaching. And so despite having lost everything in this life that he could call his own, he reminds himself he still has the Lord as his portion. And that can never be taken away. Second, God is an inexhaustible and a safe portion. There is no uh, end to His depths. He goes on forever and He can never be taken away from us. In contrast with all earthly portions, God is a fountain that never runs dry. There is always more of God to enjoy. But this is not so with uh, earthly possessions or uh, other things in this life upon which we may depend. Our money runs out. Good looks fade. Fame is quickly eclipsed by the next new thing. Memories are forgotten. Things break or get stolen. God, however, does not fade. He doesn't run dry. He will not leave us or forsake us. And as we saw in the example of the woman tortured at the hands of Queen Mary, a Christian may be stripped of anything but his God. And so, he is an inexhaustible and a safe portion. There is always more of him to enjoy and he can never be taken away from us. This is the point Jesus makes in Matthew 6, 19-24. He warns his disciples against storing up treasures on earth. Why? It's because there, here, moth and rust destroy and thieves can break in and steal. In other words, if our portion is in this life alone, then in the end, it will come to nothing and us with it. And we know this by experience, right? Even in small things. We see it in our lives, our kids' lives. Parents, how many of you have bought something for your children just to have them break, lose, or lose interest in it in weeks, days, or perhaps even minutes later? What about you? How often has this happened to you? The moment you bought something, you realize some defect in it. Or there's some relationship that you wanted and it just didn't turn out the way you thought. Or you left one job for another just to realize that there were things about this new job that you didn't like. The point is simple. What is your portion? Is it this life and all of its temporal disappointing treasures? Or is your treasure somewhere else? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 73 that there is no one in uh, in heaven or on earth, whom I desire besides God. And even when your flesh and heart fail you, God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. Well, third, God is the greatest possible portion. And this is kind of just a, a summary of what we're saying. 
if you could have all the riches that one could dream, if you could be the most famous and well-liked person on this planet, if you could be the most attractive and fit person in the world, if you could have the best grades, the best behaved children, the most loving and attentive spouse, if you could have your dream job where nothing ever frustrating happened, name it. Whatever it is in your heart, think of it right now. And I tell you, if you could have that, if you could have those things for a thousand lifetimes, they would be but a small portion compared with God. And not even God in all His majesty, the smallest glimpse of the glory of God surpasses anything this world can give. Brooks writes, what comparison is there between a drop of a bucket and the vast ocean? Or what comparison is there between a speck of dust and the whole earth? Why, you will say, there is no comparison between these things. And I will say, there is less comparison between all finite portions and such an infinite portion as God is. For this is most certain, that there, there needs... There is always an infinite distance between what is finite and what is infinite. And such a portion is God. So are you building your life upon these things? Is your happiness, your contentment, your pleasure wrapped up in the finite things of this world? Relationships, jobs, money, houses, grades, good looks. Are you trying to squeeze infinity out of the finite? What's your portion? If God is your portion, what more could you possibly want? Well, I said there were two questions. That's what God... God as our portion. That's what we mean. But is God our portion? Can we say this with Jeremiah? Or, or is he in some special class of believers who, who have God as their portion and, and we're... Um, we're left something else. And so there are just there are two uh, fairly brief fundamental issues that we have to address in order to answer this question. There's a legal level and an experiential level. Legally, the, the portion of every believer is God. Right, we talked about uh, not the Numbers 18. Um, the Lord promised the tribe of Levi, the priest in the Old Testament, that He would be their portion. Well, um, 1 Peter, we read that every believer is now a part of God's kingdom of priests. We all have God for our possession. Over and over, the Bible promises us that God will be our God and we will be His people. For those who are in Christ, we have put their faith in Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, we read that God is their God. He is their portion. The Bible concludes Revelation 22 describes uh, the new heavens and the new earth. 21 and 22. In the Eden-like paradise here, John sees the holy city, uh, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven prepared as a bride for her husband. And he hears a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be their God. And this 
is the great end for which we long, brothers and sisters. That God will be our God and we His people. The trials and sufferings of this life are but means to this end to make us fit for eternal, unhindered fellowship with God. Well, what about the second issue at play there? The experiential level. He is a present portion for us. He is our lot in eternity. But is He enjoyed by every believer in the same way and to the same extent? No. Why not? What's the difference? Why does one person experience God in a more deep and sweet way? Why is one person's experience of union and communion with Christ better than another's? Sinclair Ferguson tells a story about a woman in one of his former congregations who uh, she would uh, regularly give a portion, a substantial portion of her weekly paycheck to a homeless man whom she saw begging on the street so that he could buy food to eat. And one day, one day, the news came to her that he had died. And unbeknownst to him, he had actually been the heir of a very large fortune. This poor beggar had every right, legally, and every claim to this inheritance which was beyond his wildest imagination. And yet, because of his ignorance of it, he never claimed it. He never lived upon it. And so he lived in poverty his whole life. Legally, the inheritance was rightfully his. But experientially, he had no knowledge or enjoyment of it. And I think this is an excellent illustration of the way that many of us live. You see, while we all receive Christ by faith, we all have Him for our possession, how often do we live like spiritual beggars? We live upon our own wisdom, our own righteousness, our own power, our own abilities, our own goodness. We live upon ourselves and all that the world has to offer. But believer, the Lord is your portion. Not just His benefits, but He Himself is your treasure. He is your possession. He is your inheritance. Your lot. Your fate. The deed is in your name. You have a real possession of Him. He is yours and you are His. Will you live upon Him? Will you count your own wisdom and strength as nothing and make full use of God's wisdom and strength for happy and holy living. You see, perhaps Jeremiah had forgotten what happiness is because he had a conditional happiness based upon his circumstances, tied up in his own strength, his own comfort. But once he remembered the never-ending mercies and steadfast love of God, he was able to have hope once again. Once he returned to living upon the fullness of God, the barrenness of the exile was easily endured. No matter how difficult the situation. And remember, the situation was difficult. But Jeremiah came to see that he had all that he needed in God. There his darkness would become light. His bitterness sweet. His crooked paths straight. His poverty abundance. And this is true for us. 
We have all that we need at God's right hand. Psalm 16.11 says that you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We often see God as a means to an end. That's largely what's wrong with the, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers. They see God as a means to an end, but not Jeremiah here. And I pray, not us. But do you see God as a means to an end, to something else, something bigger and better than Him? Do you just use Him to get something that you want? If so, I I encourage you and I plead with you to turn from that wickedness and delight yourself in God. He's an inexhaustible portion. He is a safe portion. He's a present portion. He's our greatest portion. His depths cannot be plumbed. If you will have Him, you will spend from now until eternity enjoying Him in greater and greater measures. And He will never run dry. Well, finally and briefly before we uh, conclude, our, uh, let's look at verses 25 and 26. We see that God is good to those who wait for Him, those who seek Him, and depend upon Him for salvation. We come here this morning with aches, with needs and longings. We come as broken people. Perhaps we come at the end of our ropes Maybe you woke up this morning not quite sure how you were going to make it through the day. Maybe you wake up a lot of mornings like that. Friend, let me point you to Jesus Christ. Put your trust in Him. Wait upon Him. It is good to quietly wait for the salvation of God. God is good to those who seek Him. To those who wait for Him. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here and, and, and you're thinking, I have no idea what he's talking about. I know nothing of this experience of grace and joy and peace and hope. I urge you, take hold of Jesus Christ. Would you give yourself to Him and take Him for yourself? Right now, Jesus offers Himself to us. He offers Himself to you. If you have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, here it is. Will you drink? Will you have Him? What keeps you from throwing yourself fully into this fountain and imbibing one of the sweetest, imbibing of the sweetness of His mercy? What keeps you from falling safely into His arms? What keeps you from counting all that this world has to offer as loss for the sake of knowing Christ? Or maybe you're here this morning as a believer and you, you're just, you love God, you love Christ, but you're not living upon Him as, as your portion. You've separated Him from His benefits. You want salvation, but not Christ Himself. Or you've become in enraptured with the things of earth. Brother, sister, let me tell you, you are living in spiritual poverty like a beggar, settling for crumbs when the, the riches you could... There are untold riches. All the riches that we could dream are offered to you in Christ. The Lord's table is always full. Will you turn again 
every day, this day, right now, turn again to the Lord. And cast off your claim on this life and all the good that you can do for yourself and live upon God and all that He is for you in Christ. Well, just a moment then now, by way of application, I just want to say one thing. Whether you are struggling now or whether you have a trial that you're heading into, it's basically, it's one of those two things for all of us, right? We're either in the midst of a trial or we've got one coming. Don't lose hope. When you find yourself in Doubting Castle, don't do like Christian and Hopeful did and lie around and despair. Do what they finally came to do. Do what Jeremiah did and look to the promises of God. Namely, that God will be your God. That He loves you. God's mercies are new every day and His steadfast love never ceases. You know, you may find yourself in some very dark places at times, but the Lord is near. Right now, some of you may be facing the most difficult trial of your life. But God is not worried. And neither should you be. For you're in His care. God has kept count of your tossings. He has put your tears in His bottle and written them down in His book. God is for you. What can criticism do to you? What can cancer do to you? God is for you. What can sorrow do to you? What can slander do to you? God is for you. What can abandonment or bankruptcy do to you? What can bereavement do to you? What can death do to you? The psalmist cries out in Psalm 57, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame Him who tramples on me. God will send out His steadfast love and faithfulness. So don't worry. The mercies of God come to you each day from the hand of an infinitely wise and good God. And so patiently wait for Him. Whatever trial you're in or heading into, Endure the struggle because God is your portion. And He does good and is good to those who wait for Him and His salvation. In our trials, we need not simply seek to remove ourselves from them as quickly as possible. But we need to learn to live upon God and all that He is for us in Christ in the midst of it. He's enough for us. He will not leave us. He will not leave you. 